0: All right, if you will just give me a sec to uh, get everything prepared here, if you want some extra time to waste time, you can turn in your Bibles to Second Peter 1. That's where we're going to be today. That'll pick up everything, yes. We're going to be in Second Peter 1 today. Today we're starting a new series um, I have an estimation of how many it'll be, but we'll see what kind of questions you guys have as we go through the series, Um, and we'll see if it gets longer or shorter, but it'll probably take the fall and a little bit into the winter, and the name of the series is How to Change. We're talking about change. Change is a normal part of life. Change is also a, a very scary part of life. Change happens outside of us, but change also, more importantly, happens inside of us. Sometimes the change that happens outside of us ends up changing the inside of us, and then sometimes what is changing about us on the inside ends up making us affect the outside, whether we know it or maybe if we don't know it. Change is sometimes very simple to do, like in small areas of life, but in big things in life, whether it's parts of our character or personality or our behavior, change is very difficult. Because of that, I think most people would agree that change is very complicated, which is why we're gonna be doing a whole series on it. This week I was thinking about this when I was watching a documentary um, about a famous person that I'm almost sure you've heard of. His name is Michael Jackson. And I think if I were to ever pick any person in history was a perfect illustration of the complexity of change, I think I would pick Michael Jackson, because his whole life was full of change. Um, he ended up selling 750 million albums, charted 20 number one US and UK hits in his lifetime, and earned over a billion dollars. He ended up changing the face of pop culture and music forever, And he did that as he himself changed through the course of his own career, starting out at six years old with his brothers, becoming a Motown sensation, eventually becoming a teenager and being a disco star, growing up into a young adult and being an R&B revolutionary, and then eventually being probably the most famous entertainer of all time. I think the biggest change people think of, maybe the biggest change you think of considering Most of you were probably just children when he passed away. Um, The biggest change you probably think of with Michael Jackson is his physical features. When he was younger and always through his life he was African American, um, but he ended up looking more Caucasian by the end of his life um, because of a skin pigmentation problem um, that he had. But that's actually not the biggest change in his life. The biggest change in his life was really the fact that he began being known as a beloved entertainer, and by the end of his life, he had become a strange, mysterious, and even suspicious media sensation. In January 1988, he released one of his most famous songs, which was called Man in the Mirror, and the tagline of that song um, says this, if you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make a change. And his point was that everybody on earth should be changed, should be motivated to change personally, because that could end up changing the world. But if you look at Michael Jackson's life, that ended up being much harder than the song seemed to claim. And the reason was because he was a massive mixture of many other motivations than just changing the world. Michael Jackson very much wanted to change Uh, to please his fans, and to feel good about his own appearance. But insecurity and discontentment ended up leading him to so many physical surgeries that people couldn't even recognize him a decade later. He wanted to help children, but because of child abuse in his own past, a pattern of immaturity, and even fame itself, he caused people to seriously distrust him around children, which eventually led to multiple LAPD and FBI investigations. He wanted to shame paparazzi because they were invading his personal boundaries, and yet his weird behavior only brought him more attention. Ultimately, even if Michael Jackson wanted to change the world, he had an impossible time changing himself. And I think Michael Jackson's life ends up illustrating two inevitable things about change. Number one, change is very important. I think we all agree with that. But second of all, change is very difficult. And if we know that change is important, and we know that change is difficult, then what we ultimately need to start with, if we're going to talk about changing, is this. The motivation we need to change. We need to start with motivation. We need to start with the question, why do we want to change? Now if I think of you guys, and I think of teenagers in general, and even think of Christian teenage culture in general, I think all of us would agree that in some way we want to change. And I think as I think about the reasons to change, there's many, many reasons, but I thought of at least four that I think about when I think about our group and change. And what I mean is four reasons why we might want to change in four broad categories. Number one, I think we want to change because of others. We want to be liked or approved or appreciated by others around us. We want to have a good reputation. We want to have friends. Or we want to have different friends than the friends we have now. Maybe we don't want to be judged. We don't want other people um, to change us. And so we try to be the person we want to be, more popular, more self-assured, even more intimidating, so that we can change the other people around us. We want to change because of others. The second broad category is maybe because we want to change Because we're unhappy or we feel incomplete. We want to get something or we want to get someone that we don't think we can go without because that thing or that person completes me. Maybe we want to be who we've been told to be since childhood. We've always been working hard to be a good person or a good representative of our family. Maybe we just want to feel good about ourselves and we never have. We want to be more comfortable in our own skin. We want to be more authentic or unique in this world. Or we want to just be someone happier tomorrow than we are with ourselves today. The third broad category, I think, is we want to change because we want to be comfortable. We want to be comfortable uh, in the future. And so we change who we are now and what we do so that we can prepare for a comfortable future. Maybe that means getting a better opportunity in life. Maybe it means a better job a better house. Maybe we want higher chances of never worrying about anything. Maybe we want to be comfortable in the sense that we want unrestricted entertainment and pleasure. We just want to get what we want to do. And all of that could be better in the future if we prepare for it now. Or maybe we want to be comfortable because we don't want to go through hard things. We're scared of pain or suffering. And so we change the way we are now to minimize our chances of pain and suffering. In the future. That's the third. And then I think the fourth might be that we want to change because not changing comes with consequences. We feel stuck in bad habits or behaviors and so if we don't change our sins or mistakes can end up ruining our life. Uh, We feel like if we don't change the consequences of bad behavior and actions could stop me from getting friends or success or pleasure or reputation. Maybe we think if we don't change, then our life will actually be out of control, and we like it the way it is now when we're in control. Maybe we feel scared of something or someone, and therefore we want to change now so our life can be back in our own control. We want to change because we're scared of the consequences of not changing. I'm sure there's many other motivations to change as well, and I hope that you can think of your own personal reasons for motivation. Well, one problem with change is that we can get so focused on our own personal reasons and motivations and concerns to change ourselves that we can never stop and really consider why god wants to change us and that's honestly what we want to do today we want to ask the question does god care about change and if he does why why does god care about change and that's the reason we're in second peter so if you have your bibles look at second peter We're going to be in chapter 1, and we're going to read two verses, verses 3 and verse 4. And it's on the screen for you as well if you don't have your Bible here today. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Peter says this, His, meaning God's, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is the word of the living God. Ultimately, the big point that Second Peter 1, 3, and 4 is making is that God does care about change. God cares about all of his people changing. And the first thing that God desires to change in anyone's life is their motivation to live life. And why they would be motivated to change. And ultimately, Peter states that right away in verse 3. He says this, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. The phrase that we really need to maximize for a while is this understanding of through the knowledge of Him. And the phrase is going to come right after. Now, ultimately, God says He is entering our life to change something. He's given us every resource, and He's used His all powerful ability in order to do one thing. As uh, Second Peter says, the thing is to know Him. God's goal is that you would know him. The goal of life is knowing God. And when you know God, Second Peter says, you'll know what life is about. And life there in the text is not referring just to the physical world and why it exists and why it works, but it's referring to spiritual life. It's through the knowledge of God that you learn about yourself, who you are, and how you must live because you are an eternal soul made in God's image and not just a body. But the knowledge of God also is supposed to tell us the way we're supposed to live that life, which is the next word he uses, which is godliness. And Peter is ultimately talking about the same thing. Life and godliness are the same thing. He means to value your life means to live in the way you were created to live, which is to live a godly life. To live a godly life. Real life is living as a result of both knowing God and consequently pleasing God and this is the point that he's trying to drive home at the beginning of the letter to know God and to live godly means recognizing and committing to the greatest goal that anyone could ever have which is worshipping God for his glory and excellence and ultimately that's the very next phrase he says Peter says that we are called to God's glory and excellence I think most of you guys understand what glory means it literally means weightiness Back in the day when uh, gold used to be the form of currency in the ancient Near East, you knew a brick of gold was valuable based on how much it weighed. You put it on a scale, and if it weighed more, it was worth more. And what God is saying is, I weigh more than anything in this world. I am worth more. I am most important. I am most valuable. And I think it should be obvious what excellent means. It doesn't just mean it's very, very good. It means perfect. And that is who we are living for. We live for the God who owns all importance and is all perfection. And ultimately what Peter is talking about is all of life is about worship. Everything you do is a result of what you think is worth the most. What you think is most valuable in life. And God is saying what must be most valuable in your time, thinking, and behavior is proclaiming and living in light of the worthiness and value and glory and excellence of God. And part of the point that Peter is trying to make is not just that you are living for the glory of God, but you should be motivated to do that because all of existence ultimately is heading towards the worship of God. Now, you're not going to have time to look up all these verses, but this is just a small understanding of how the whole Bible is proclaimed in this same message. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 6 and 7 says that humanity was created for the glory of God. Isaiah 49, 3 says that Israel became God's people for his glory. First Samuel chapter 12, says that the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Ezekiel 20.14 says that God was patient with Israel for his name's sake, that it would not be profaned, that means made less valuable in the sight of the nations. Ezekiel 36.22 and 23 says that Israel ended up being exiled and then restored to relationship with God for the sake of his holy name, to vindicate the holiness of my great name so that the nations would know that I am the Lord. And ultimately, that's not just an Old Testament message. That's exactly what the New Testament writers say as well. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says that whatever we do, whether eating or drinking, all of it must be done for the glory of God. And Peter, in his first letter, the one before this, says the same thing in 1 Peter 4.11, where he says, in everything, God should be glorified. God's glory is so radical, it's so all-encompassing in the perfect of life that it is exactly what we are called to care about most. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 and 10, Peter already made this clear when he says this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies, same word in our text, of him Who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And ultimately what the Bible is talking about is not just that God calls you to be worshipers now, but that everything, again, in eternity will end with God's people worshiping him around his throne. And if you want to see more of that and how good that is, you need to read Revelation chapter 7 verses 15 and 17, where a great multitude goes around a restored creation worshiping and serving the Lord. There's a clear point that we need to nail down in this text, which is the reason we're talking about this, is because if God's glory is the perfect of the purpose of all life, then God is completely justified when he asks us to change. And so if he does ask us to change, we must change. The reality is that God isn't only demanding this, even if you think logically for just a second, it makes perfect sense that if we ever wanted to change, God would be the person we should ask. And there's an easy reason for that if you just think about it. Think about your life and when you change something, when you change thinking or behavior. It's usually pretty obvious why you change and why I change. It's because we've been wrong, we've made mistakes, we get into problems, we have to adjust. We made a decision where we were wrong because we didn't consider every outcome or angle. We change all the time. And as easy as it is to say nobody's perfect, the reality is that we don't change, not just because we're not perfect, but because we're finite, we're limited, and we're incomplete. But God never changes. James chapter 1 says that in God there is no variation or shadow due to change. And the reason that God never changes is because he's never ever needed to change. God's never been surprised. He's never been caught off guard. He's never made a mistake. He's never been wrong. He's perfect and he is complete. And that means if we really admit every time we change that we are incomplete, perfect people, then ultimately the person we need to ask about how we should change is God, the only complete person in the universe. The reality is that God is complete and therefore helps incomplete people recognize how they need to change. Therefore, if there's any place that we recognize that we don't glorify God, ultimately, we need to change. We need to ask God to change. And that may seem obvious, but there's a parallel truth that goes right with this in the Bible that I think we know, and it's this. The reason we don't change is because we don't want to change. And the reason we don't want to change is because we don't care about the glory of God. Pastor Josh has been using an interesting illustration, that I think has been helpful. Imagine being on a movie set, and Tom Cruise is on the movie set. Now, ultimately, Tom Cruise could snap his fingers, and a latte just shows up in his hand, or he could say something mean to someone, and you could say, Well, that wasn't very nice, but it is Tom Cruise. And everybody goes on the movies. respecting Tom Cruise in a certain way because he's Tom Cruise and because he's essential to the story that the movie is telling. But if you had an extra, if you or me were an extra, we were in a tiny scene in the movie and we showed up on the movie set and we started acting like Tom Cruise, the only conclusion someone could come to is either you're super arrogant or you're absolutely crazy because you're not Tom Cruise. And this is the story that the Bible tells us. The Bible is revealing to us that all of human existence is a story proclaiming the glory of God, and we are extras on God's historical set, pretending to be Tom Cruise. We are invading God's story, and we are saying we are most worthy of glory, and our lives should be about us. I've been devotionally reading the book of Judges. Which is probably one of the worst periods in Israel's history and the Bible is making something incredibly clear as it's showing you how terrible humanity can be and the way it tells you that is repeating one phrase and everyone did what was right in their own eyes when life is about us everything gets ruined whether we see the effects of it or not and that's exactly why we have the Bible so we know that life isn't supposed to be about us it's one of the things and the all things that Second Peter talks about that God has given us to explain what life is about and how to live a godly life. But even when we open the Bible, the fundamental flaw that we come to is we even try to make the Bible about us and reading the Bible about helping us. And we don't care about God's glory and we don't care about knowing the God that the Bible is actually about. Pastor Josh and his dad wrote a book I've been reading. It's called God's Solutions to Life's Problems, which is a great title. And he says this in the book, and I think it's really helpful. And I might have it on the screen. We'll see. Yes, this is the quote if you want to follow along. They say some people want to be entertained or made to feel good when they read the Bible or hear it taught. And that's all they want when they expose themselves to the Bible. But they don't want to be convicted. They don't want to be reproved. They don't want their sins to be exposed. And they don't want to be challenged to change. And that's why we get very little out of the Bible. That's where their lives don't change through biblical teaching. And that's why they don't like the Bible. That's why many people say the Bible is dry and boring or uninteresting. Because they approach scripture with the wrong motivation, and thus they get little out of it. And honestly, the same problem that we have when we approach the Bible is the same problem we have when we live life. Which so we make life about us, And our greatest motivation is to live for ourselves. And that is ultimately what it means to be a sinner. It's to see in so many things, appreciate the goodness that God has given in his creation, and then ruining it by thinking that good is only good if life is about us. C.S. Lewis had a quote about this that's helpful. He says, We are half-hearted creatures who fool around with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered us. But like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum, because we can't imagine what is meant by an offer to have a holiday by the sea, we are far too easily pleased. The reality is, what Peter's going to say is, this world is a mess, because in verse 4 he says, we have sinful desire, which ultimately just means we want to live life for ourselves. And that's why we love sin so much. G.C. Rawls says it this way, Our sins are often as dear to us as our children. We love them, we hug them, we cleave to them, and we delight in them. And to part with them is as hard as cutting off a hand or plucking out a right eye. Now I understand completely that most of you guys have heard all of this before, and this is nothing new. But the reason we're talking about it is because we can be so easily deceived That we just have the right motivations all the time. And that every time we do something good, we're doing it for God. But the problem is, it's really, really easy to be deceived about what our lives are actually about. Here's an example of this. We often think that the reasons God wants us to change is simply because God agrees with our personal reasons to change. Let me give you an example. We think God would not want me to have no friends. So it can't be wrong for me to change in order to have friends or have influence. God wants me to have a good future and to plan responsibly. So it's not bad that the most important thing in my life is planning for the future. God would never want me to feel bad. And God would never want me to feel uncomfortable. So if change ever becomes hard or painful or difficult, or if change ever makes me feel bad about myself, then I don't need to change. And here's the problem. Those things could have truth in them. But the problem is we are often so blind about our own motivations that we function as if God is more concerned about our concerns than his own glory. And that is a huge problem. Because God is most concerned with his own glory more than anything else. And when we don't change, we are proving, whether we are verbally saying it to God or not, that we don't have the same goal as God. When we don't think certain sins are a big deal, we are telling God that you don't deserve the glory that you say you do. And when we hide sin, we're saying to God, you don't see everything, and you don't care about this, and you don't care about your glory in this, and so you don't care about your glory in everything. When we continue to sin because we haven't been caught, we are saying to God that you can't stop me or you won't stop me. So you can't accomplish what your plan, or you won't accomplish your plan. Or when we assume, or we just say, without any thought, "I can do what I want with my life." We are telling our Creator that He has no rights over us creatures. We refuse to change to God's standard. We are being our own God. Christ explains how big of a problem this is. Matthew chapter 6 verse 24. "No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Which is this. The fundamental problem for every single human is that we care more about ourselves than the other than God. Which means that we don't just ignore God, we hate God. And the question you might be asking is like, who are we actually talking about here? Are we talking about Christians, or are we talking about non-Christians? And the reality is we're kind of talking a little bit about both. On one hand, I'm talking to you if you're a Christian. Because there are Christians who are stuck in sin. And there are some of you guys who are Christians who are trying to grow and change, but you're finding it almost impossible. Or there are some of you who are Christians who know a lot of truth, but personally you don't spend a lot of time with God. And the reason that might be the case is you've actually forgotten that life isn't about you. But I'm also talking to some of you guys who know a lot about the Bible, but you're not Christians. And I say this as lovingly and as gentle as I can. What I mean is, some of you guys think you're Christians because you're not as bad as the rest of the world. You think, well, I'm not in the LGBTQ group. I'm not hanging out with bad kids. I'm going to church on Sunday. I'm reading the Bible, and I have some things memorized. And the problem is, none of that, none of it, Makes you more godly than any of those people. If you have a pattern of gossip, if you cannot stop lying or teasing other people, if you are obsessed with your own entertainment, if you refuse to obey your parents, it might be a warning bell that you have never, ever cared about the glory of God. And the reality is, every single one of us has been there or is there. Everyone. Because Romans chapter 3 says none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, and no one seeks God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. For Paul finally says in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Which means God is worthy of all glory, and we've never lived up to that standard, even though that is what we're called to do. Stage Spurgeon once said that labeling us ungodly is like labeling the ocean salt water. It's obvious. Here's the point. The Bible tells us that we are ungodly people who have called, been called to be godly, to worship God. Jerry Bridges once said that godliness is first of all God-centeredness. And so how can we be God-centered if either A, we've never cared about God's glory, Or B, we've forgotten how glorious God is. How do we change? It's the very, very beginning. How do we have the motivation that we cannot possibly have? And ultimately, the way you could say it, is we need a glory bomb. We need something to wake us up to the fact that God is worthy of all praise and take us away from the fact that we've never cared about his glory and we need to see it. As John Piper says, wonder changes people, and seeing glory changes everything. Here's the good news. Here's the good news. This is everything 2 Peter chapter 1, 3, 4 is talking about. Because remember, we've really only covered one phrase, which is this. The earth-shattering view of God's glory that we need to see is seen in his grace. God is going to reveal His grace to you so that you would see His glory. And when you see His glory, you would know that God being glorified is the greatest motivation to change. And he talks about that, and we can see that if we actually go back and look at everything that he is talking about. If you look in this part, in verse 3 and verse 4, one word shows up twice, and it's this word, granted. And the word granted is to give a gift which is the same word as grace. And the verb he actually uses there to give is not like the regular verb in the New Testament to give. It's not like me and you are exchanging gifts. It's a strong, emphatic verb that's actually describing a king giving a gift to a peasant in his kingdom simply because he wants to make everyone know that he's gracious. Someone described this verb as an act of large-handed generosity. Generosity point should be clear. God is the king of the universe with all power and all authority, and for our sakes, his power was used for us. For us. As a gift. The first time he uses the word granted is in verse three when he says, God's divine power has granted us what? All things. And in the Greek, those two words, all things, are one word, and it's the first word, which means it's supposed to be underlined, emphatic. This is the most important word. Everything that you need to glorify God, God has given to you freely so you would see his glory and be changed. And ultimately so that you would understand that God not only demands you to be glorified, but he invites you into his glory. Notice how he phrases that phrase, calls us to his own glory and excellence. This is an invitation from the God of the universe to come into his throne room and see his glory so great that it can change you to be the person you couldn't be on your own. But he uses the word granted twice, and the second time he uses it in verse 4 where he says God has also granted to us his precious and very great promises. Literally, that means mega promises. When I say literally, I mean literally. The Greek word is mega. And it's where we get our word, mega. It's talking about promises that are so good and honorable and extraordinary. Promises that are valuable and magnificent. And we don't know exactly what promises Peter is referring to, but he's simply making this point. The glory of God's grace is that he is guaranteed to fix your problem. Guaranteed to fix your problem. And your problem is that we need to see the glory of God we need to be able to change to be godly people. And God is guaranteed to fix that. And this is what ultimately that means. The person who cares most about you changing isn't you. It's God. God is the person in the universe who's most invested in changing you. Who's most invested in giving you the resources to change. Who's most invested in showing you the purpose of this world. And most invested in you understanding that living a life for His glory is what all of existence is about. And the way He's going to make that happen is in a way that's more mind-blowing than we could possibly imagine. And that's the next phrase that He uses in verse 4. And this is the phrase. Through God's power and His precious and very great promises, you may become partakers of of the divine nature. Now this is not a cultic thing. It sounds a little culty. It kind of sounds like God is saying you can become a little God. And that's not what Peter is meaning. He's actually using that phrase because so many people in the Greek culture did believe that. And he's making a different and better point. This is the point he's making. God is going to make you like him. God is going to give you his character. God is going to give you his qualities. And the way that he's going to do that is that you are going to become God as you walk closely with God. As you live life with God. Now every one of us didn't just wake up today and come to Roots and we just are the way we are because we've always been that way. We've changed because we've been influenced by others. By friends, by our parents, by heroes, and by celebrities. So a really good quote this week, and it said that people are like Cheetos. They rub off on you. And that's totally true. So much of the way I am is a result of people in my life. Part of the dumb jokes that I say and all the dad jokes are from my dad. My whole family's humor is from my dad. And one of the reasons I say brother so much, if I've texted some of you guys sometimes, it's because my best friend in college said brother all the time. And I was around him so much that I just started saying it. And you are the same way, whether you know it or not. You have quirks and interests because of other people that you spent time with. Some of your bad habits, some of your sins are a result of actually the people you spent time with. The Bible talks about that a lot. Some of your bad habits and your sins have affected other people. God is saying that he's going to live life closely with you and as a result, his character is going to rub off on you. That's The relationship we've been invited into. God is saying, I'm inviting you to become like me by living with me. Seeing my glory daily will help you recognize that I'm the greatest good you could possibly imagine. And that good is going to come into your life and change you and change your life and bless you and be multiplied in your life as you walk closely with me. Living with me means becoming like me. And even though it's a supernatural process, it's a natural concept. And this is something that you have to walk away with today. You have to know this, because it's, it's not obvious. Becoming a Christian is so much more than just getting saved. It's so much more than just putting a stamp on you that says, In Christ, so that you're good when you get to heaven. That's not the extent of Christianity. Christianity is living with God. Having a relationship with God. Christianity is about experiencing the truth and a taste of heaven now. Because one day you're going to live with the king of heaven forever. And it's already begun. And that means it's going to take us away from everything that's ruining that, which is this world. Which is where Peter goes. He says that God has given us an escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The fact that our motivations are almost never about God is the reason that this world is such a mess. And it's why so much of us have a testimony in which we recognize completely that we spent our lives running the opposite direction of God, which means hell. Because the definition of being in hell is not just being judged by God, it's being away from God, which is what's we want. And God is saying, You have no idea how great a life I'm offering you. I'm giving you an escape, not just from hell, not just from judgment. I'm giving you an escape from yourself. From yourself, who's running away from God. I'm letting you escape from that. And not just one day, but now then ultimately, if that means that we're talking about a relationship with God, we're talking about knowing God, His promises, and escaping judgment, it should be obvious what we're talking about. The glory that we need to see that will motivate a change in our life is ultimately the gospel. The gospel is the beginning of everything. Which means this, that you can't really live for God If your idea of living for God is earning grace, which is the way so many of us live our lives, if you're trying to be godly in order to be saved, you are the definition of a not-saved person. The reality is that you can only live a godly life after you've come to God with your ungodly life. The only way you can start to change is that you recognize that God loves you before you changed before you had anything to offer God. Because ultimately, no one in the universe has ever been able to glorify God the way he deserves. And the glory of God that you're really going to see in his grace is when you recognize that God's glory is fully put on display when you approach him in your ungodliness. C.H. Spurgeon, a very famous preacher, had an awesome illustration of this. He says there was a painter... He was painting a picture of the city he lived in, and he wanted it to be an accurate representation of that city. So what he did was he started inviting people to come from that city and paint them just the way they lived in their daily life. And one of those people was a city sweeper, someone who swept the streets clean. And that means he was a really dirty guy. He was covered in dirt all the time because you sweep in the city. And so the man invited him to come in so he could paint him. Problem was when the city sweeper came, he combed his hair, he got new clothes, and he had washed his face. So as soon as he came in, and the painter saw him, he sent him away. Because I needed you to come dirty, and I didn't invite you to come in any other way. That's the gospel. God has invited you to come dirty, to come with your sin, to come unchanged. Because that's how the beauty of his story, that he is working out in history, actually glorifies him. God is glorified when you actually accept the free offer of the gospel, which seems too good to be true. And it is too good to be true. It's so good to be true that it's a guarantee that a human couldn't create it. And the reason we know it's true is because God is glorified, firstly, in your life you accept the gospel. And this is exactly what Spurgeon ends up talking about, and you'll be able to see the quote that I'll read for you on the screen now. Spurgeon says, it does at first seem amazing to be an awakened man, and that salvation should really be for him who is as lost and a guilty one. Oh, says the godly person, but I must be this and that in order to be saved. All of which is true, for he shall be this and that as a result of salvation. But salvation comes to him before he has had any results of salvation. It comes to him, in fact, while he deserves only the bare, beggarly, base, abominable description, ungodly. That is all he is when God's gospel comes to justify him. May I, therefore, urge anyone who feels that they have no good thing about them, who fear that they have not even a good feeling or anything whatsoever that can recommend them to God, that they firmly believe that our gracious God is able and willing to take them without any godliness and to forgive them spontaneously, not because they are good, but because he is good. Do not attempt to touch yourself up and make yourself something other than you really are, but come as you are to him who justifies the ungodly. We are ungodly people who have been called to live a godly life. We are people who refuse to change who have been called to change. Ultimately, the first step in how to change is to be motivated in everything you do to glorify God. And if that's never happened in your life, where you've never been able to recall just how good God's glory is, you will see it in the gospel You accept it, you will change. This seems so easy because it is, but it also seems so difficult because we just don't believe the full extent of the gospel. But before we can get to that next week, talk about how the gospel is even more than just salvation. We need to understand the motivation that God has called you into is to live with God, to become life like God. And therefore, to be part of something so much bigger than you could imagine. God has saved you from yourself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5.15 says that Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And ultimately, the greatest place, one of the greatest places you could ever see that is in the life of Peter. Peter was called to be an apostle, and he was a mess, like we are. He was prideful, he was arrogant. Christ called him Satan once. And he lied to Christ, he denied Christ, and he abandoned Christ. And even after Christ, at the end of the Gospel of John, restores him and tells him he loves him and he has a plan for his life, even after that, Paul the apostle has to call him out to his face. Because Paul says Peter's conduct, his life, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Was Peter a Christian? Yes, he was. Because Peter's life had nothing to do first with his own godliness. It first had to do with the godly life that Christ freely gave him through his own life. It was made his on the cross. And was given to him. By Peter so many years later in Acts chapter 326, could look in the face of a Jewish council that hated him and wanted to kill him. And even in his brokenness, he could say to them, God raised up his servant and sent him to you first to bless you by turning you away from your wickedness. That's what God is going to do for you. If you first accept the gospel, and if you first accept Even though you don't want to glorify God, God is going to change you that you would want to glorify God. And that the longer you live with Christ, the more you're not only going to be pumped about life, but you're going to expect and be excited for heaven. Let me share one last quote. Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp, two guys who wrote a book called How People Change, they said this, We all want the wrong things. But God is in the business of changing what you want. And Peter says that God works to replace my sinful, selfish nature with his divine nature. Amidst all of life's confusion, he transforms my heart so that I can think, I can desire, and I can speak, and I can act in ways that are consistent with him and who he is and what he is doing on earth. God is offering that to you. For free all you're going to do is accept the gospel and if you think that just accepting the gospel isn't enough to be saved and it isn't enough to change then you're definitely going to come back next week because that is exactly what we're going to talk about next week but let's pray Father you are so good you are so much better than a simple sermon about your grace, but you have ordained that by the power of your word you might proclaim your excellencies and that we might witness your glory in our hearts. And that as a result, we would be changed, not overnight, but that we would see, either for the first time or for the first time in a long time, you are worthy of an entire life dedicated to you. No suffering, no pain, No sorrow is worth forsaking a life with you. You are too good for people as finite and limited as us to comprehend. And you, you have condescended to us by giving us your only Son, so that whoever believes in you would not perish but have eternal life. And you've promised that we may live that life now, before we've ever done anything worthy of praise you sent your son to die for us. When we were at our most wicked, you sent your son Christ to die for us. Please, Father, before we ever try to force our lives into conformity to your will, let us accept the gospel. You have said that it is impossible otherwise. Father, we can only do that by your help, so please change us, transform us, and let us see your glory and your grace because we need it more than anything, and you have promised that it is ours. If we look to you for everything and we see your glory and your love in the freeness that you have offered the gospel to us, please, Lord, let us accept the gospel that we might change, that we might see the perfect world you are restoring. We pray all of this in your matchless and glorious name. Amen. Thank you guys. I know that that is probably just as long as all my sermons were last year, and there's a reason for that, which is because uh, nothing in your life is going to change unless you get this. If you don't get this, then nothing's going to change. And so we need to kind of hammer it home. But now we want you to be able to talk about it, to ask questions, um, to just expose how you're thinking about this, to talk about where you're at, and just be able to share um, what it is that uh, God would have for you. So um, break up into your small groups, Um, especially junior high girls um, if you aren't sure where to go then ask the leaders because they'll I think know if you're in their group or in someone else's group um, and the rest of you guys know where to go